Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs, bestowing life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chris, it's all yours. So, uh, quick review. We're talking about St. Louis IX, King of France. He is uh, a, a, a principal figure of the 13th century. And we spoke last week, or, or two days ago, about how he, uh, his life takes place at the end of the Crusading era. The Crusading era begins formally, historians say, with the Council of Clermont at the end of the 11th century and ends with the fall of Acre in 1291. And St. Louis's life is in largely um, the second middle and second half of the, uh, of, of the 13th century. We talked about how the Crusades are much under, misunderstood. Time in the history of uh, the church, I recommended to you um, a very accessible book, The Glory of the Crusades from Steve Weidenkopf, who's a regular lecturer for the Institute of Catholic Culture. He wrote this book, you can get it, at Catholic Answers uh, shop site, and then a, a thing he did called the uh, Real Story of the Crusades, a, a CD set, and a lot, and both of those, the, the the book and the CD set will prepare you for the usual sorts of objections that you get from uh, non-believers or Protestants uh, that the, the the church was bloodthirsty and they took over this, you know, bucolic Pacific kingdom of peace-loving uh, Muslims and. And, and this sort of thing, or that they were there to enrich themselves and answers to all of the usual charges, which don't really bear very much scrutiny at all. Uh, we talked about Lewis's preparation for crusade, uh, how he had to set his personal affairs, his interior life in order, how the crusade really drove uh, the, the, his, his interior life, but also the life of the kingdom, the ordering of the politics of the kingdom, the peace that he makes with other countries and uh, the logistic preparations there with associated. And so we'll just pick up uh, right there. So before going on crusade, each knight would put his affairs in order. And he'd do this by hearing the claims of uh, his vassals and restoring disputed property. Lewis himself did this. In fact, he commissioned a special team of men who were called enquêteurs or uh, inquisitors. And he sent them out around the, uh, the country of France, and he stayed in Paris so as not to interfere as they um, uh, adjudicated the grievances uh, uh, against the crown. And Joinville, uh, Jean de Joinville, uh, the king's friend and, and famous biographer, describes himself interrupting the celebration of the birth of his son 
while he goes and he settles uh, accounts with his vassals. In such preparations, the four last things would have been to the fore of the mind of the crusader. One reason is because sea travel was perilous in this uh, age. Uh, but there was also the common conviction that the success of the enterprise depended upon the purity of the souls undertaking it. Uh, and Joinville certainly contemplated his death and no, saying no one who's in the state of mortal sin or in possession of another man's property has any business going to sea. Uh, by the way, St. Louis seemed to share Joinville or the common, uh, and let's admit, justifiable dread of going to sea in the 13th century. Um, after Lewis is captured, sorry, spoiler alert, um, he has a conversation with a Muslim emir about the perils of sea travel. And this Muslim emir says to him that any man who entrusts his person and his property to sea travel more than once in his lifetime uh, is clearly a madman and his testimony should not be uh, admissible in court. And the story goes that Lewis, you know, laughed in, in agreement. The perils of sea notwithstanding, no harm came to Lewis's fleet in the three-week journey to Cyprus. You might want to take a look at that map number two. Uh, that's the handout for today to kind of follow Lewis's uh, travels. Um, Joinville uh, does give us a little glimpse into medieval piety with a story about unfavorable currents that the fleet experiences probably somewhere off the Barbary coast. After three days of seeing the same odd-shaped mountain, uh, they realize the fleet is not making any progress. And so all the soldiers, the whole company, make a procession three times around the mast of the ship in honor of Our Lady, after which the winds become favorable and they travel to Cyprus. When Lewis gets to Cyprus, he gets his first taste of the confused politics of Outremer. Now remember, we are, we're you know, a century and a half almost into the Crusades here. Um, and this expression, Outremer, O-U-T-R-E, M-E-R, French for across the sea or over the sea, Outremer. This is what the Frankish Knights or the people of France refer to as, you know, the Levant or, or the Holy Land. So Lewis um, gets his taste of the confused politics there. Uh, he reprimands the master of the Templars who, who had attempted on his own authority to negotiate peace with the Sultan in Egypt. And Lewis is, there's a little bit of naivete about him. Um, to a Western knight who was thinking in terms of uh, good Christians and evil Muslims, it was difficult at first for him to accept the occasional alliances that the Crusaders had been making with one Islamic sect against another that frankly made it possible for the Latin Kingdom and Jerusalem to survive. This didn't discourage, however, Lewis from, what, what did we say one of the dark horses was on Tuesday, uh, or the dark horse uh, was the Mongols. And the people of France were hopeful that the Mongol invasion from the east, uh, that these people could be uh, brought into the crusading effort against the Muslims. And so Lewis attempts an alliance with the Muslims and, excuse me, with the Mongols. 
and he receives an embassy from Al-Jigadai, Al the leader of the Mongols in Persia. The members of this embassy overstate the presence of Christianity in the Khan's court, and Lewis has unwarranted joy, and he sends gifts to the Mongols, including a uh, tent, a red tent in the shape of, uh, shaped like to, to serve as a chapel. Uh, any hope of the Mongols becoming Christians ends with al Jigadai. <clears throat> Nothing came of the effort. But Lewis continues to get correspondence from al Jigadai's wife because she regarded this gift as a sign of vassalage. So she continues to send him correspondence saying, hey, you should be continuing to send me gifts. On Cyprus, Lewis found himself mediating between Cypriots and Venetians, Pisans and Genovese, Hospitallers and Templars. He lingered on Cyprus longer than he had planned, and he was forced to tap into the stores that were there to serve the campaign in Egypt. But after eight months on the island, his army, equipped with small landing craft that they had built over the winter, set sail for Egypt. The date is May 1249. So this is a good time to ask why Egypt uh, and not Jerusalem? In the middle of the 13th century, the center of Islamic power was Cairo, and the man who ruled it was the Sultan Ayyub. And until the Egyptian army could be neutralized, there was no hope of carrying on or, or securing uh, a stable and secure kingdom of Jerusalem. Before taking the fight to Cairo, however, St. Louis had uh, two other choices that he had to make, or a choice between two options, um, Alexandria or Damietta, and both of those are on your, uh, on, your, on your map number two there. And Louis chose Damietta. His decision, according to the correspondence of one of his knights, a man named Sergi Ashart, was influenced at least in part by a storm that blew the fleet off course. Sergi, by the way, reports something like 1,500 ships in Lewis's fleet. This seems to reflect the medieval capacity to exaggerate or uh, incapacity for, for estimating. It probably was not that large. But um, there was something more than a storm at sea that influences Lewis's decision. Joinville reports that when the Christians captured an Egyptian galley, they learned that the Sultan Ayyub had devoted the greater portion of his forces to defense of Alexandria. So they had some intel. They knew that Demietta was less well defended. Only in hindsight do we know that it was not the right choice. Indeed, the initial assault, though hard fought, took only a day. Saturday morning, July 5th, after assisting at mass and confessing their sins, Lewis's knights hit the beach. They don't even wait for their horses. They jump from their barges into the surf. Joinville tells of Lewis himself jumping off of his barge and the water being up to his neck. And so this would have been very deep because according to Joinville, Lewis was a head taller than the rest of his knights. And so they're all wading ashore. The clash on the beach can't really be described as any kind of planned assault, really an abundance of single combats. Met by the Sultan's forces, the Frankish knights fought hand-to-hand -hand in the tide and on the sand 
for hours. Lewis, always to the fore, always in the thick of the fight. In time, the Christians carried the day, and any Muslim not lying dead on the beach fled to seek safety inside the walls of Damietta, who, which was defended by Bedouin tribesmen. They found instead a terrified garrison and a civilian population evacuating the city. Save a handful of Christians who lived there, Damietta was abandoned by the Muslims. By Sunday afternoon, the king's banner flew over the palace of the Sultan. So in 48 hours, the Franks had taken a city that 30 years prior had held the Crusaders at bay for more than a year. Within a few weeks, Damietta was transformed into a Frankish city. The mosque was consecrated as a Christian church. A bishop was installed. The military orders set up houses. Genovese, Pisans, Venetians set up markets. Queen Marguerite, who had accompanied her husband on crusade, moves into the Sultan's palace. And for a brief summer, Damietta becomes the capital city of Outremer. But Lewis now had to wait for two events. He had to wait for the arrival of reinforcements under the command of his brother Alphonse, Count of Poitiers, and a natural event, the subsiding of the waters of the Nile from the annual flood. Lewis stayed with his army encamped outside the city, and he saw to the camp's defenses because the Sultan had bribed Bedouin horsemen with uh, a gold bizant, you know, a gold coin for every Frankish head. Heat, flies, fever, these all plagued the Frankish camp. The barons distracted themselves with elaborate feasts. Common soldiers took up with prostitutes sometimes very close to the king's own pavilion. Months after the campaign, Lewis discharged these men who had acted so faithlessly in a time when the French army was in such need of God's grace. The barons of Outremer tried to convince Lewis that his next, next objective should be Alexandria. Not only would an attack on Alexandria be a surprise, but also the port of Alexandria in Christian hands would secure their control of the Mediterranean coast of Egypt. The king's brother, Robert of Artois, argued for Cairo. He said, if you want to kill the serpent, you must crush the head. The image must have appealed to Lewis, who decided for Cairo. But if Lewis had good logisticians on his staff, he was badly in need of a decent intelligence officer. Damietta, as the Crusaders were soon to, learn, soon to learn, was separated from Cairo, you can get some sense of this on that map, by a hundred miles of desert. And this desert is laced with a bewildering network of canals and Nile tributaries. So this, this distance from Damietta down to Cairo is desert, but it's laced with all these canals and tributaries of the Nile feeding into uh, the Delta. Alphonse, so difficult land, difficult land to cross. 
Alphonse arrives at the end of October with reinforcements, and Lewis launches the campaign for Cairo at the beginning of Advent. The event was a complex, what we would today call a combined arms operation. River barges burdened with huge siege engines and supplies fought currents and contrary winds. Engineers were necessary to dam the canals and build the bridges, the army marching over land. Montserrat, also on that map, 45 miles southwest of Damietta was the first objective. On December 21, the Christians drew, drew close to Montserrat and they met with the army of the Sultan drawn up for battle on the opposite side of a wide canal. While the Christians worked to build the causeway, Egyptian engineers dug out the canal on the opposite bank and harassed the French with Greek fire, which Joinville, using his gift for the vivid likens to thunderbolts and dragons. When no progress had been made to find a fortress downstream, Lewis sent out a party. A place to cross was found, though it could hardly be called a ford, for the horses had to swim for much of the crossing. Lewis's brother Robert, Count of Artois, was the first to cross along with the master of the temple and his 290 Templar knights. Robert had strict orders from the king not to engage the enemy until the whole army could draw up on the opposite bank, but hoping perhaps to exploit the element of surprise and certainly hoping for glory, Robert led an attack against the counsel of the better disciplined Templar master. The sudden attack did catch many of the Saracens by surprise as they were rising from their sleep. The Grand Vizier was sitting in his bathtub. He was having his beard dyed with henna. A great slaughter ensued, but Robert was not content with the success of one risk. Again, disobeying the king's order and ignoring the Templar master and intoxicated with his success, he leads his force in pursuit of the Saracens all the way inside the city walls of Montserrat. And here the tables turn. The French knights, who were once glorious, astride their war horses in the open field, are now suddenly trapped in what soldiers today call urban terrain. They find themselves in narrow streets and alleyways, and they're contesting with blind corners and rooftop archers, arrows and ambushes, destroying Robert's army, they perish in the fray. A crusading victory rapidly became a Christian rout. Five of the 290 Templar knights escaped with their lives. Lewis's army had at last taken the opposite bank by this point, but at too great a cost. Keeping, weeping at the news of the death of his brother, he refused to consider a retreat back to Damietta. When the Egyptian counterattack came, Lewis's cavalry swept the Saracens back into the city, who regrouped and charged again, this time driving the king back to the banks of the canal, where he was saved only by French archers storming across on a hastily built pontoon bridge. The Franks repelled attack after attack, but now three critical 
combat multipliers. Time, climate, and geography are on the side of the Muslims. Throughout Lent, the situation deteriorated. By dragging ships overland, the Egyptian army blockaded Crusader resupply from Damietta. On one occasion, as Joinville tells it, they captured 80 Christian vessels and slaughtered every single man aboard. Lack of fresh food, poor sanitation, bring the standard Crusader plagues. Dysentery and scurvy. Joinville describes in his book the effects of the scurvy uh, skin that looks like old leather and the army's barbers having to cut away with their knives the gangrenous gums of crusaders infected by scurvy. When at last Lewis decided to retreat to Damietta, he had to retreat under constant harassment from Saracen skirmishers. Much of the army, including Lewis, was too sick to march. The king refused to abandon his soldiers in spite of Lewis's own constant need to dismount his horse, suffering as he was from the indignities of dysentery. When Lewis's brother, Charles of Anjou, complains to Lewis, he says, your, your Highness, you're slowing down the progress of the march. Lewis says to his brother, Count of Anjou, if I am a drag on you, get rid of me, but I will never rid myself of my people. What followed was a particularly tragic end to a tragic story. Philip of Montfort, one of Outremer's better barons, had very nearly negotiated free passage out of Egypt for the French army in exchange for the surrender of Damietta. But the deal, before the deal could be sealed, a French sergeant, who some say had been bribed by the Saracens, persuaded the Christians at the Battle of Farascour to surrender or the king's life would be lost. Before Lewis understood what was happening, his army had laid down their arms. Every man was taken captive, including King Lewis. The King of France was led off in chains, accompanied only by his cook. The Muslims found the French army too large to handle. So for the next seven days, they beheaded 300 nights a day, leaving their corpses to rot in the desert sun. Back in Damietta, the courageous Queen Marguerite, we talked about this on Tuesday, who had only three days before given birth to her son, John Tristan, now found herself negotiating. Remember, we talked about the problem with private navies. So now Marguerite has to negotiate with the owners of the Genovese and the Viennese uh, and the Marseillais uh, ships um, who wanted to sail back home. They, they, she bribes them to stay from her own fortune, saving Damietta and thereby the lives of many French prisoners because Damietta ultimately becomes the bargaining chip for Lewis as, as he negotiates his ransom and that of his army. Lewis despised particularly the selfishness of his barons who attempted to negotiate privately their own ransoms. His terms were either my whole army or nothing at all. Though sick with dysentery, the bones of his, so his, he was so sick with dysentery 
the, 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 his spine, the bones of his back and his ribs are showing through his skin. He kept up his customary good cheer throughout his captivity, even when he was threatened with torture. He was not treated badly by the Sultan who sent him new clothes and Arab doctors, by the way, whose skills Lewis was very impressed by. Lewis's captivity is worth a little bit of reflection here. While in the East, Louis IX was as much a Christian witness as a warrior. When he was taken before the Sultan in Egypt, he was asked why he bore such a sorrowful countenance. His answer surprised the Sultan. It was because, he said, neither the Sultan nor his men had yet embraced the Christian faith. The Sultan was unsettled by Lewis's words, for he had thought that the Christians had come to steal their lands. But Lewis proved him wrong by displaying complete detachment from the spoils of war and detachment from his own personal fortune. His contemporaries marveled at his decision to pay the full sum of his ransom to the Egyptians, in spite of the fact that the treaty had been negotiated only by a verbal handshake, right, and that the Egyptians had not really held up their end of the bargain. The king's fidelity to the Catholic faith won him the respect of his Egyptian captors. They called him the most steadfast Christian one could find. During his captivity, an Egyptian warrior who respected Lewis demanded to be dubbed a knight by the king, and he threatened him with death if he would not comply. But the king refused to bestow the honor of Christian knighthood on an unbeliever. Most impressive to his contemporaries was his uprightness during his negotiations for his release from captivity. His Muslim captors at one point wanted him to swear an oath that if he should break his word, he would renounce Jesus Christ. And, and they were willing, the Muslims were willing for their part to make a similar oath saying, if we break our word, we'll renounce Muhammad. The king's brothers urged Lewis to accept these terms because they knew that Lewis would never break his word. But St. Louis, so pure of heart, refused to countenance an oath that even hinted that he could ever reject our Lord. And his determination won him the respect of the Muslims, who did not, in the end, make good on their threat to kill him. For a moment, a coup d'etat during which the Sultan lost his life to the sword of Bebar's Mamelukes looked as if it would bring an end to the ransom talks, but Bybars was as interested in one million Byzants and the surrender of Damietta as the Sultan had been. After a month in captivity, the king was released on payment of half of the debt. The other half would be paid when the king reached Accra, uh, in large part through Templar funds. The Saracens insisted on holding one of the king's brothers, Louis named Charles of Anjou, but the Muslims must have gained some insight into Louis's affections by this point, and they insisted on Alphonse of Poitiers, whom Louis probably loved better. Joinville reports Louis upbraiding Charles on the ship to Acre for gambling at the backgammon table when he should have been doing penances. In fact, Louis takes Charles's gaming table and he throws it overboard. 
For four years after his release, Louis remained in Acre, governing what remained of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem and negotiating the release of the rest of his soldiers, for whose captivity he felt responsible. Though the Egyptians proved faithless and murdered the sick Christians left behind in Damietta, in time all of Louis's knights were released and a 15-year truce with Egypt was set. In 1253, the Sultan of Aleppo led a massacre of the town of Sidon, killing 2,000 Christians. The king, who was busy reinforcing the walls of Jaffa, heard of this, of this massacre. He marched overland with his army to Sidon, where he saw to the burial of the dead. His men complained to him about having to handle the rotting and stinking corpses. So the king, with his own hands, set about this corporal work of mercy before joining the priests in their prayers for the dead. While at Sidon, Lewis heard the news of his mother's death. Even Marguerite mourned the loss, the death of Blanche, for, and Joinville indicates his surprise here because he knew that Blanche had made Marguerite's life difficult. But the queen mourned for her husband's sorrow. The news of Blanche's death reinforced Lewis's opinion that he needed to return to France, and the barons of Outremer agreed. He had done all that he could during his four years in the Holy Land. He had rebuilt the defenses of Acre and Jaffa and Sidon, but all agreed that Louis needed to return to France to inspire another army of men to take the cross. When Louis weighed anchor at Acre, this calling must have been at the center of his heart but he returned to a West in which the opinion now was that if a man as devout and upright as Louis the Ninth had failed and even suffered the indignity of capture, that the prospects for another crusade were hopeless. Louis's heart was burdened with the failure and he feared that the capture and imprisonment of a Christian king had brought confusion to Christendom. Matthew Paris reports that the post-Crusade Lewis set aside the joys of life, small and great, in which he had once so delighted. Joinville now describes a man more austere and more set than ever on matters eternal. Return to France in 1254, now with this greater personal asceticism, the man who once loved a good party or a stirring theological discussion with his friend Thomas Aquinas now devoted himself more than ever to making France a place where Christian holiness would flower. He labored actively to bring France's legal code into conformity with the gospel and with the great tradition of Roman law. He reminded his clergy from the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 they should not bless men who were engaged in dueling or trial by combat. He, re he issued his most significant work of legislation, the Grand Ordinance. The chief goal of this initiative was to protect his subjects from the harassment and the extortions of, and bribes by royal officials. But it also contained the laws by which the king sought to reform the morals of his kingdom. For example, Lewis would change local customs or local laws that he thought were excessively harsh. 
in the province of Turain, there was a law that if a, if a servant stole a loaf of bread or a chicken or a drink of wine from his master, uh, he could be liable for the loss of limb. And Lewis says, this is uh, excessively cruel, and he abolishes the code. Of particular concern to Lewis is blasphemy. You remember, we, we began last two days ago with his death, with the famous letter to his son, where he says, work to rid your lands of all base sins, in particular, in particular the swearing of blasphemous oaths. He decreed penalties for usury, prostitution, certain forms of gambling, and the excessive frequenting of inns. He understood that the common good was the common happiness that reposes in what? A shared life of virtue. The most famous of all the traditional stories of the French king was his exercising of the judicial role, his office as the judicial role of the office of king. Joanville tells the story, the king had the habit of allowing the commoners to come to him at, in the gardens of Paris or at the royal palace in Vincennes. And he would stand there with his back against the giant oak tree and he would listen to their pleas and see that his jurists settled their cases equitably. There was a moving report of the king's habit of making the sign of the cross on his lips every time before delivering a judgment. This exterior sign, of course, a manifestation of his interior life. Of St. Louis, Francis de Sales says, he was a teacher worthy to be followed in the art of leading courtiers to the devout life. His biographers tell of Lewis teaching a young page how to sing a pious hymn instead of a worldly tune. And his gentle but firm counsel that Joinville adopted the practice of washing the feet of the poor on Holy Thursday. Throughout his life, St. Louis insisted upon a high standard of moral behavior from his family, at his court, and from the nobility in general. And from the, uh, uh, remember the incident where he throws his brother's board into the Mediterranean and dismissing his uh, soldiers who had frequented the brothels. St. Louis was raised a soldier. He once said, I would have you know that when a layman hears the Christian law slandered, he should defend it only with his sword, which he should thrust right into the offender's guts as far as it will go. Joinville tells this story. It's evidence that saints are not altogether infallible, but we should note that there's a little bit of bluster here and that in his own efforts as a crusader, St. Louis was not nearly so bloody. It was the conversion and not the death of the Muslims that was his aim at every turn. He ordered his men to spare women and children in Damietta, and he was always ready to provide material assistance to Muslims who wished to embrace the Christian faith or had to leave behind their community to do so. His first crusade was marked by conversions in Cyprus and in the Holy Land, and he provided Christian Muslims with passage to France, and he even arranged for them to marry Christian women. He labored for peace and justice with such drive that he became the most sought after arbiter in Europe. He negotiated a peace with England that was far too generous 
in the mind of his advisors was Henry III. He mediated between Henry and his own barons and between rival princes in the Rhineland. He outlawed private war and judicial combat. He coined the realm's first gold coin in centuries, the AQ, with the crusader imagery, the militant pilgrim's shield and the legend Christus Vincit, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat. He gave generously to the poor, feeding from his own table and washing their feet. He enjoined Joinville to wash the feet of the poor every Holy Thursday. He patronized the church, building monasteries and leper hospitals. He encouraged large-scale displays of public piety, participating himself in no fewer than nine public translations of relics, saints' relics, something he had only done once before going on crusade. In Matthew Paris's words, he was the pinnacle of the kings on earth. In G.K. Chesterton's, the noblest knight of the Middle Ages. His record as king justifies the praise. So vigorously did he pursue peace that from 1243 until 34 years after the death of St. Louis, there was no serious challenge to the authority of the French throne. During that time, both England and Germany were troubled by rebellion and civil wars. Louis successfully united Languedoc back to France, a region that only a generation before had been a hotbed of the Albigensian heresy, and in fact had suffered from some of the excesses of that crusade. Louis made peace with England, he mediated, mediated the disputes with other countries, and in disputes between countries, nearly a dozen times. He was a natural peacemaker. France's only wars during his reign were his two crusades. Lewis understood that the peace that began in the heart of each Christian man would spread throughout Christendom. In looking after the needs of his people, especially the poor, he gave a tone rare in any age to the office of king. His reign is the stuff of a devotional guide, for so many politicians today, for whom ideals such as self-sacrifice are remote, and the idea of a united Christian people working out their salvation in common is impossible. More impossible, perhaps, for the post-Christian politician is the idea of a particular people with a strong sense of their place and their unique role in history. It is this, it is this self-understanding that St. Louis gave the French, an understanding confirmed and strengthened at the head of her army by the Lorraine peasant girl a century and a half later. In the 1260s, a new opportunity presented itself. Envoys from the King of Tunis came to tell Louis that their master was ready to embrace the Christian faith. He hesitated for fear of reprisal, but had hesitated for fear of reprisals in the Muslim world. Louis responded with enthusiasm. Tell my Lord your King that for my part, I so ardently desire the salvation of his soul that I would willingly remain in prison of the Saracens 
all the days of my life and no longer see the light of the sun, if for that your king and his people would become Christians with sincere hearts. St. Louis resolved to lead a crusade to Tunisia for the purpose of making that conversion possible. His advisors approved the plan's strategic merits, for the Tunisians had been known to give assistance to the Egyptians and were themselves already a foe in the struggle for the mastery of the Holy Land. There can be little doubt about which reason most appealed to Louis IX. It was, as Pope Boniface said, the growth of the Catholic faith. He made his crusade to Tunisia a preaching mission. 200 Franciscans accompanied him. In the end, the crusade failed because St. Louis had been deceived about the intentions of the King of Tunis. The Tunisians took every advantage of his guilelessness to ambush his army that had been distracted by Muslims feigning an intention to convert. This is where we began. As the king lay dying in the sands of Tunis, he reiterated his commitment to evangelization. Oh, that we might please God, let us find a way for the Catholic faith to be preached and established among the Tunisians. St. Louis's two crusades were at the root of his mission as king. In response to the need of Eastern Christians, the call of the church, and the imperative to spread the gospel throughout the whole world, he dedicated his life to the crusade from his 30th year until his death. Although he was devout from his youth, he clearly experienced a moral and spiritual transformation during the middle years of his life, emerging with a single-minded devotion to the crusade and a deeper asceticism. What splendor and sumptuousness his reign had involved had been during his early years. Perhaps the most telling way of pointing out the change in him is to note that Louis's second crusade, which died with him, was by military and political standards a worse failure than the first. But those who see his crusades as mere military and political failures miss altogether the central role these events played in the life of St. Louis. In the crucible of his first crusade, the heart of a Christian king was forged. It is fitting that he died on the second. With Joinville, we, well may we, and with pity, mourn the death of this holy prince who held his kingdom with such sanctity and truth. St. Louis, most Christian king of France, pray for us. Thank you, Mr. Chuck. The first uh, most important question that we're getting, Chris, is about the books that you used there to, um, to, uh, to prepare, and maybe you can just tell us what those are, or maybe um, if you've got them, they're in front of you. If not, we can post them to our events page. Um, okay, yeah, actually, can, is, can look at, at the top of the handout, I know I recommended Matthew, I'm not, I don't have it in front of me. Um, at the top of the handout, I know I recommended Matthew Paris uh, and, um, and uh, Joinville for contemporary accounts. If you read nothing else, oh yeah, there we go, good. <laughs> so so um, yeah, Jean de Joinville is, it, it, you can get his biography from Penguin Classics. Um, 
William of Nangis is another contemporary account. Joinville is the one that you should read. He was a close friend of the king. He was on crusade uh, with him. And then um, th there were two contemporary ones on there. William Chester Jordan. I think the title of the book is St. Louis and the, oh, thanks. Uh, William Chester Jordan. Uh, I think it's called St. Louis and the, and the Challenge of a Crusade, something like that. And then the Margaret Way Labarge book, you can find certainly in a, um, in a used bookstore uh, or at ABE Books, something like that. It's just a really wonderful account, the sorts of accounts that were written around the turn, around the turn of the last century um, about lives of saints. And of course, she draws very heavily on Joinville and her own knowledge of, of French history. I should, say, I should say also, particularly for um, the second part of the second part. So the second part of today's talk, uh, St. Louis's return after his heart is convicted uh, with, the, with the heart of the crusader and he turns with this new asceticism to the reform of France uh, and to the deepening of, of, the, of, the, of the spiritual culture there. Um, I stole liberally and heavily from my very dear friend, um, Christopher Bloom, who, uh, who is a real scholar of French history, PhD in uh, French history from uh, Notre Dame, and as many of you probably know, is the academic dean at a magnificent organization, the Augustan Institute. And so I, if, if, I stopped to, if I stopped to quote all the times that I was stealing from Chris Bloom in that section, it would have been very clumsy. So I'll just say that, you know, to get that all out there. So. I'm not, so I don't have to do any time in purgatory for Plato. <laughs> um, uh, Chris, you mentioned about the uh, about relics, about uh, transfer, transporting relics uh, in your talk, or at least that's what it sounded like to me, but your your sound cut out a little bit, um, his role in that. Could you just, do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you could, re yeah, just refer back to that, maybe repeat what you had said, or maybe clarify a little bit. Sure. So, um so we, we talked about the translation of relics as a, as a public ceremony. Everyone knows the rel, a relic is, a, 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 it, it, certainly in this case, it would have been a piece of the body of the saint, almost certainly a bone, perhaps some hair, but typically a bone. And in and, and larger parts than we might think today, if there are um, any uh, institute viewers or fans um, in, in the Pittsburgh area, I think it's St. Anthony's, which is right outside of Pittsburgh, as, is the lar I think the largest collection of first-class relics outside of the Vatican, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there you can see, you know, thighs and femurs and jaw bones and skull caps and things like that. And so this is, this is the sort of thing that we would be talking about. And the translation of a relic would be a rite or a ceremony involving um, the, the, the taking of a relic and placing it most likely, you know, even now, an, a, a consecrated altar on which the Holy Sacrifice of Mass is offered uh, is, is supposed to have a relic um, inside of it, uh, a, a first-class relic of a saint. Um, uh, here we, at Catholic Edge, we have Catherine of Alexandria and Justin Martyr and Thomas Aquinas, I think. And, um, and in any case, uh, um, uh, so, 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 the, so the relic in a public procession would be translated, would be carried, processed, and then installed uh, and placed um, under the high altar in a, um, in, in a church. And so Lewis himself, on his return, 
participated in nine of these grand displays of public piety. I mean, today we would think maybe like of the processions in the, in the Western Church um, on Corpus Christi where uh, the Blessed Sacrament, you know, some parishes process with the Blessed Sacrament through the streets of the city. Something, so something akin to that kind of a, a procession. Um, he, the, the most famous one, of course, in Lewis's life is the one that he participates in before he goes on First Crusade, where the relics, some of the passion relics, including uh, a portion of the crown of thorns, much of which was lost in the revolution uh, uh, in France, um, is translated to the Saint-Chapelle, right? The Holy Chapel, which sort of sits there in the shadow of Notre Dame. Uh, if you've never been there on the Ile, uh, Ile de France, um, some of the most absolutely stunning, beautiful, magnificent windows in, in all of the world. Yeah. Uh, I want to challenge you for a moment yeah. that I think uh, that some people uh, coming to us tonight may say, well, look, this isn't the way the History Channel would have told the story of <laughs> King Louis the Ninth. Okay, this guy was a barbarian who was trying to impose his way of life upon other people, destroying their villages and towns and taking advantage of the people and so forth. How do you respond as a, as a Catholic? Uh, telling the story of the Christians uh, in the face of such attacks that would say, no, 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 the Christians have corrupted history, uh, and, uh, and really the way it is is something different. You know, it, it, in, the, in, the, in the case of, of St. Louis, and I would just say, in the case of the Crusades generally, um, it's not, frankly, what we would call the academic community who, that, that continues to... Uh, spread this sort of uh, false tale about the bloodthirsty crusaders seeking untold fortune and preying upon uh, the peaceful, bucolic, uh, advanced society, the Muslims. Most people in academia now have really left that version of events, which really comes to us from, um, from the Enlightenment, from a lot of Enlightenment thinkers. Um, Brendan McGuire, I don't know if he's done this for you or not, but as a as a Kaiser, but Brendan McGuire uh, uh, has uh, and Thomas Madden both, who's Brendan's um, a mentor, uh, have both done a very both written what might be described as um, you know intellectual histories of the Crusades. That is, uh, I, I said that wrong intellectual histories of the understanding of the Crusades throughout history and how, how understandings of Crusades sort of reflected, you know, the time um, in, which the, in, 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 which, in which they were, uh, you know, came, to, 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 um, came into understanding. And so this particular version really comes of age in the Enlightenment and the Revolution, which, of course, is, is very anti-Christian. And we suffer with that today. But most serious scholars of the Crusades now argue there just isn't any evidence for this. So, for example, the, um, Jonathan Riley Smith and uh, uh, Madden both have demonstrated that one of the common canards, the second son canard, that uh, it was always the second son, you know, the guy who wasn't going to inherit anything, was the one who went on crusades. Well, the fact is that after pouring through many of these records and these charters and these deeds and these wills, they find out that an abundance of firstborn sons went on crusade. Similarly, we talked about on Monday or Tuesday, 
the idea that uh, uh, people went to gain great fortunes. Frankly, these people, these crusaders had to sell off much of their land. They had to borrow vast sums of money in order to go on crusade. And then simply the fact that most historians, serious historians, now acknowledge the conversion, or excuse me, the convergence of, of, of events. Brendan does this well. You should listen to his first lecture. He, he does a great job. I think it's up there on your site. The convergence of events, the Seljuk Turks coming into Anatolia, the emperor in the east asking for help from the west, the growing um, piety with respect to relics, in fact, plays into this, uh, into this crusading fervor that builds. Because what is the relic par excellence? It's the Holy Land. It's the region that where, where, where our Lord was born and worked and walked and worked miracles and healed the sick and preached and died and rose from the dead. The Holy Land is the relic par excellence. And so the idea of pilgrimage, the idea of atonement for sins, the help that the East is asking for in this time, there's a convergence of spiritual uh, um, uh, pieties that are coming into flower under uh, Gregory VII, especially Hildebrand, Gregory VII, um, and then Urban, and uh, a, a political need. And so what we really have in the form of the Crusades, and even non-believers but serious scholars acknowledges, the Crusades were pilgrimages, they were armed pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And so Steve Weidenkopf in his book, you know, the glory of the Crusades lays that out very well. There's another guy um, who's not a Catholic, uh, God's Battalions by Rodney Stark. He's, uh, he's, he's not a Catholic. He's a, he's a sociologist at, uh, he, we've had him on the show here at Catholic Answers. He, he's a sociologist at, uh, uh, in Dallas there, the Southern Methodist University, I think. Very fine man, but just an honest historian. Doesn't, doesn't, has no, um, agenda. He just reports what the facts are. And his book, God's very accessible, readable. I recommend God's Battalions. I recommend Glory of the Crusades, uh, Jonathan Riley Smith's What Were the Crusades. All those books are, are easy to read. They're easy to get through. And they will just line you up with argument or argument, argument that really gives the lie to that, that common canard that, by the way, now, as I say, I'm repeating myself, but nobody is seriously in academia Still, yeah, there's, there's somebody's got God's battalions right there. Somebody um, still, uh, you know, the only people still argue it are you say, like the History Channel, Hollywood, you know, some of these colorful books that you might find at Barnes and Nobles or something like, something like that. So, um, and, I, and you know what? I'm glad you asked, Father. I'm glad you asked that question because it gives me an opportunity to say, and Father has said this, everyone here has the duty to, to be able to answer that question. And you're not going to be able to answer it as well as Brenda McGuire is you know, or Steve Weidenkopf maybe, or something like that. But you, but you can come up with five or six different facts, and you can in charity say, well, did you know this? Did you know? And, and similarly, with any, any of the charges of history, Galileo, or, or Pius and the Jews, or whatever it is, it, it's not difficult to spend a little bit of time learning what the, what the, what the fact of the matter is uh, on these cases that are the Inquisition. I've got a talk on the Inquisition on the um, 
uh, Institute's site. A little bit of time, and then you can be conversant and confident in it. Thank you, uh, Mr. Check. Thank you to Catholic Answers for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.